0: Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field.
1: This is Julia Baltz. I'm here with Dialogues of Dermatology. I am interviewing Dr. Algin Garrett for our Titans in Dermatology series. Introduction for Dr. Garrett. He did his undergrad at Bucknell. He then went on to do his medical school education at Penn State, followed by a dermatology residency at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University and Mohs Surgery Fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. He returned to VCU after finishing fellowship, where he went on to become the chairman from 1992 to 2018. Dr. Garrett, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, be uh, interviewed by you or speak to you today.
1: Absolutely, pleasure is mine. So the first thing I'd love to hear about is a little bit on your childhood. Where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. I think a lot of people know that for its historical significance. Very a small community. Of, uh, Harpers Ferry are probably 2,000 people. A very small public high school. So I spent my first uh, 12 years of education in uh, Harpers Ferry. Not a lot to do there except enjoy the outdoors and enjoy fishing, which I did every, usually every weekend. Uh, we live, uh, Harpers Ferry is right at the merger of the Shenandoah River and the Potomac River, and every weekend we were either camping or hiking from Harpers Ferry. Actually, that's when I went to uh, school at Bucknell. I actually played basketball undergraduate there. That was at a time when freshmen couldn't play, but I uh, played basketball at Bucknell under. A basketball coach that many people know, Jimmy Valvano, was a coach that was well-known at North Carolina State. So he was, he was at Bucknell for a couple of years. So I said the first part of my life was very much entrenched in West Virginia and a lot that happened in West Virginia. So I won't say those are the formative years, but those are the years that was formed a significant part of background in my life.
1: Absolutely. I want to grab something you said here. So. I understand you You played under Jimmy V, and I heard you showed up in his autobiography. Is that true?
2: Uh, yeah, it was. You know, it's amazing how you uh, impact people, how you impress people, because you never know who you, but he did mention me uh, in my, bio, so uh, he had very kind words to say about my stay. I never thought I was that impressive as a basketball player, <laughs> but he had very kind words to say about me, so it wasn't it was his bio.
1: That's impressive. That's impressive. Going back to your childhood in West Virginia, how did your childhood impact your desire to become a physician?
2: Well, Harper's Ferry in West Virginia in general is a community that is, you have to remember the history of West Virginia is part of Virginia. It's separated from Virginia and it's separated from Virginia for a reason. And honestly, growing up in Harpers Ferry, there weren't a lot of good memories because there were a lot of unpleasant things that happened related to some of the issues we're dealing with now related to race. You know, and as early in life, I think, and with the guidance of parents, you kind of have to have a vision for what you want to do in, in life, what kind of contribution you can make. You can either get bogged down in being angry or be getting even. Uh, but certainly I've learned in the last 20 years that neither one of those anger and hate uh, gets you nowhere. So it impacted my life because several things happened to me while in, in high school in regards of being accepted into the, the National Honor Society. And that's done by your uh, teachers. And if you're the best student in the school, for some reason, I think you should be accepted into that society. And I never was. And I realized quite honestly, I think that was in my junior year that how life is going to go from here on. You know, you can't be bogged down by that. It's not something that makes you angry, but something that motivates you. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that opportunities, even when earned, aren't always given.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think that's kind of transferred into my feelings. We'll probably talk about the lady being chair. And when you're given the opportunity to exert power in a very positive way, you have the opportunity to give people, not give them anything, but provide them opportunities. And that's the only thing that you need. Some, you know, When people earn it, give them an opportunity and provide them that, that step that they need. So that's why a lot, of, a lot of negative things that occur early in life in West Virginia impacted the way I viewed what I can do in terms of contributing to whatever area. I mean, I didn't know at that time I was going into medicine, no. but I knew that it was something better than this. Mm. at that time. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So you didn't come from a family with doctors in your direct family?
2: No, my father was a pharmacist. Um, he actually trained at Howard University. Wow. Um, my mother did two years of teacher's college. So there were no physicians uh, in family. In fact, we had a lot of my father actually who was from Texas and had a lot of educators on his side of the family. He was from Marshall, Texas. Mm-hmm. And many of his relatives on that side were teachers, educators, on usually a secondary level. I don't recall anyone being in the college level. And my mother's side, actually, she is from Virginia, but raised in Washington, DC. And I don't recall, I don't think I my mother didn't complete school. I don't think there was anyone on that side actually that completed four-year college. Mm-hmm. So no, I had no professionals, especially medical field in my background. Mm-hmm.
1: So you played basketball at Bucknell and then went on to Penn State. What was that college trajectory like that allowed you to apply to medical school? Where in that time frame? I mean, I think any of us who did any kind of sports, it's so all-encompassing.
2: I mean, I've always been a very open-minded person, Mm -hmm. but I think college probably was the best four years of my life in terms of growth. Mm -hmm. And you meet people, and I've I've met a friend that's been a friend for years. And so you meet people and you get exposure to folks. And, you know, I came from a very small school in Harpers Ferry. And you think you're a big man on campus when you come from a small school. But then you go to a really good school and you realize, hmm, everybody's a big man on campus. Uh, A lot of the students at Bucknell had exposure to topics and opportunities that were never provided in terms of scholastic opportunities. So I think that was actually a period of time where I had probably the greatest growth in my life. Mm. And um, the, what was even more impactful, I think Bucknell was an excellent school. I mean, the learning there and what was taught there and the education I got really was a springboard to medical school. Medical school was, as you know, voluminous. It's not particularly hard, but it's voluminous. You just have to, you have to be organized. You have to spend your time correctly. You know, There are a few geniuses. I remember some of them, colleagues in school that, uh, I remember I used to sit in the lecture hall and there was one particular, I won't mention his name because I don't know if that I should, is he used to sit (laughs) in the very last row of the lecture hall, smoking a pipe, that's when you were allowed to smoke, with his legs up on the chair. And I don't think I ever saw him take a note, but he's now the director of neurosurgery at Penn State. So, you know, it's just a voluminous work, but it's good. It was a good four years and it was a good springboard, excellent training, getting to meet all sorts of people, getting to understand people. I think that was the most important lesson that I learned. I'm sorry, the other, you asked me specific about sports and that's, I just can't, I think team sports is the best way for a young woman or young man to really learn to live with, grow with, understand, and interact with all sorts of people. And I think that's what basketball did for me. So that's the other part of, I think sports is a, Tremendous way for people to get to understand each other, live with each other, and learn about
1: each other's culture. Mm, absolutely. Speaking of medical school, there's something in the water in Pennsylvania. I mean, in terms of most surgery, I I heard a rumor. Particularly, you roomed with Vic Marks at one point in medical school, or you guys overlapped.
2: Actually, Vic and I were at Bucknell at the same time. This the story that Vic tells me that he actually tried out for the basketball team at Bucknell and realized when he was competing against us, that probably um, he better, it was best he concentrate on his scholastic endeavors, uh, not play basketball. (laughs) So when we uh, were finishing up, he contacted me, actually. I got into uh, Hershey Medical School, and he called me and contacted me, said, would you like to room together? And I said, that would be great. So the first two years of our lives, and that That was actually a formative experience. That's him getting in touch with me, uh, being together. And for the first two years, we roomed together. And then he got married and Linda wouldn't let me stay uh, (laughs) with the three of them because they only had one bedroom place. But when we were finishing college, I really didn't know what I I wanted to do. I mean, I had thoughts of doing ENT, I had thoughts of doing ophthalmology, and I actually had started interviewing in radiology. And I don't even know where that came from. I interviewed at George Washington Radiology. And Hershey was starting, it was called Hershey Medical Center of the Penn State. It's now called the Penn State College of Medicine. But mm-hmm. at Hershey, they were just starting the dermatology program. And they have brought Dr. Donald Lookingbill in to start the dermatology program. And when I went into dermatology, nobody, I mean, it wasn't a glorious specialty you know, the people, when I told them I was interested in dermatology, they said, well, don't you become a real doctor. And so I was one of the few people that was interested in doing a dermatology rotation with Dr. Lookingbill. And I don't know whether it was Dr. Lookingbill himself, whether it was dermatology, but he absolutely just made it fascinating for me. And I immediately stopped interviewing in radiology and said, I'm going to interview in dermatology. So I got into dermatology and when I told Vic, I said, Vic, you know, I'm gonna go into dermatology. And he's one of the ones, he said, why don't you become a real doctor? So he went on to the prestigious program at Mayo Clinic, to did internal medicine. And two years later, I got a call and Vic said, you know, Algern, this dermatology thing, I think I'm interested in that. <laughs> so he ended up going into dermatology. And about two or three years after that, I really, we didn't have a surgeon at our program at VCU. So I said, you know, this is an opportunity for me to build something from the ground up. I was very interested in surgery. So most of my vacation time, I actually spent going to different offices or surgical offices, getting a baseline experience. And I called Vic and I said, Vic, you know, I'm really interested in the surgery thing. I think I'm going to do most Fellowship. And he said, oh, OK, go ahead, go ahead. I'm going to do dermatology. And then I got a call two or three years later. Vic said, you know... This surgery thing, this mo surgery thing. I think there's something to that. I think I'm gonna do the fellowship. So he did his fellowship in Nashville. So mm-hmm. we've remained friends, and we've kind of remained uh, our careers have paralleled each other, right. which has been this uh, made it made is enriched my experience in this Moe surgery.
1: Absolutely. So you talked about Dr. Looking Bill and that mentorship. I think. For a lot of us, mentorship has been so important in dermatology, having that one person who sets off that spark. You know, you've talked about Vic, you've talked about Dr. Lookingbill, you know, who do you think really helped you and inspired you to continue on that path?
2: Well, I really think that Dr. Lookingbill started, most of my friends will tell you I'm not a quiet person, but I think I'm an introvert. And one of the, that wasn't very helpful when I was in medical school because most of the people were brash and outspoken and I was never really like that. But one of the things that Dr. and Dr. Lookingbill recognized that, but he said, he thought, he saw some characteristics. He said, I think you would be a good dermatologist. I'm very willing um, to, to support you. So he wrote me a very nice, insightful letter. So he's basically the person that kind of launched my interest in dermatology. And that was sustained by some of the other titans in dermatology. I just spoke with some of the titans in dermatology and realized that the representation, I never went into dermatology thinking, and this is my thinking all my life. I never went into dermatology thinking I was going to be, quotes, a black dermatologist, Mm -hmm. that I was going to treat black skin, and I was going to make up that niche of lack of care that's provided, I went into dermatology as something was interested in me. And what can I do? Because I'm in this now, that's going to be good for, for the specialty. And that's how I viewed it. So there are folks like George Kenney and it was chairman at Howard, and his, the name comes to me, Paul Kelly. You oh. may or may not know Paul Kelly was very big in surgery. And um, he was actually very helpful for me because I was, for the American Board of Dermatology, I was on the educational program at one time. So he was one of the ones really that was very helpful and pushing and and making sure that my interests remain in dermatology. Mm-hmm. So I would say Paul Kelly, Donald Lookingville really basically was the springboard person that mm-hmm. I've got I've got me interested. So.
1: so you mentioned representation within dermatology and I mean, embarrassingly, dermatology is the second least diverse specialty in medicine. Mm-hmm. And this is 2022. How were you met as a young trainee?
2: You know, I think that's an interesting question. And it's a lot of perspectives to that. Because when I went to Bucknell, one of the things Bucknell was trying to do was actually decrease diversity on the undergraduate level. Wow. And then when I was accepted at Penn State, Penn State was trying to do the same thing. This is their early 70s. So we're dealing with something that's It's not new. I mean, it's not new. I remember when at Hershey, they brought in several students of color. Uh But the problem with the way that it was done, and I think it was hurtful, is that a lot of the students really weren't prepared. Uh They were just looking to bring numbers in and not looking to bring numbers of people who were going to be able to sustain the the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I think that was very hurtful for people that were looking at this. They say, okay, look, we did this and this is what happened. Mm -hmm. Well, you may, I think the selection process is all, and I can't tell you all the the qualifications. So when I, but, and I said, there's a way to do this. You can make, you can increase diversity without sacrificing quality of care. Mm -hmm. So actually when I became chair, I was acting chair for a year and a half. I had my ideas about, and I was honestly, I was the first black applicant that was ever accepted at, at VCU. Right. And, I'm, and I kind of said, well, there must be a purpose to this. I don't think everything in life has to have a purpose, but see, there, there are a lot more people that are probably much more well-qualified than I am. So actually, when I became chair, I, I sat down with our administrator and said, you know, one thing that was very helpful was having a black chair, you are likely to get more applicants than if you, because people can identify. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: But my goal was, I said, we can increase numbers. We can get more African-American candidates and and just have to broaden our vision and look for those candidates because those candidates are there. And that's, I'm proud to say, I mean, obviously that we were able to, during the period of time that there increase our our numbers of of applicants that, that came through. So I have always been accepted, no matter where, in terms of who I am, I know who I am. And I've never had an issue, quite honestly, with being not accepted, not felt to be qualified as a doctor, because I've always had this kind of inner confidence. I remember very early on in medical school, well, if you Been to Hershey, Pennsylvania, you know that it's not the most diverse area of the world. Um, And so, and even while I was there, there weren't many African American physicians. And I remember going in once and you could read the expression on people's faces that the patient's face, well, I'm not sure. And I very early on decided that this isn't my problem Mm -hmm. because I'm a good physician, Mm -hmm. this is their problem. I will present the information, present myself, the same way I do if you're white, green, purple. And, mm-hmm. and if you choose to, after meeting me, uh, feel this is, you're not getting the adequate care, mm-hmm. then that's nothing I can, it's not my problem. Right. It's your problem. And honestly, I can't think of, I'm sure maybe something happened behind my back, mm-hmm. but I could maybe remember one incident in, in my time in medicine where somebody, uh, where I felt that for some reason, I was slighted, my feelings were hurt because of this color, and I just, maybe people sense if you have a sort of an inner strength or confidence, not reserved, so I pretty much all my life have been able to negotiate most situations truly without feeling that you have to, you, you know, you, a lot of people don't have to, don't think about this, but Sometimes you do have to interpret how people are reacting to you, but you have to take three nanoseconds and yeah. reflect on that. Now, is that me? Is it them? Is it, they had a bad day? Is it So you, you do have to analyze many situations. And I don't think a lot of people have to do that when they, as a woman, you probably, you may have to do that more than anyone else. And so you go into the room and they're saying, well, are you nurse? You're mm-hmm. nurse so-so, right? That's not doctor yet. So you have to get over that hump of being insulted because most of it is education. People that have that in mind is most of it's education. Other is culture of the exposure. I was in, when I left VCU in 2018, I was in, I worked at Geisinger health system in central Pennsylvania at State College and uh, State College is not the bastion of diversity or open-mindedness. So some of that creeps in, but I think, People it, people sense if you're, if you're doing a good job, how you're treating them. So I, I really, and for the last 50 years, I've always said, and I tell nurses, it's not my problem. If uh-huh. they can't handle that, they can't deal with that. You know, they can, they've got multiple choices of physicians they can get, but that's not my burden to bear. Uh-huh. You know, I know that I can do a good job. Mm-hmm. I know that I can treat this, what this person has. Mm. I just you know, but it's not my problem if they just can't get over the fact that you're a if you're a woman or if you're black, if you're purple or whatever
3: mm-hmm.
2: so that's a long answer. I don't know if you can convince that so long no,
1: i I think that's fantastic, and I think that's good advice too, because I think we all a lot of us do come across microaggressions in medicine where you have to take that moment back and say, okay, but what am I here to do? I'm here to provide great care
2: That's exactly what you have to that's your that's your role your role here is to provide great care. And if you do that well, I think usually things work out. So.
1: That's great. Great mm-hmm. advice. I, I want to touch a little bit on your time as a chairman. How did that come about? Were you someone who said, you know, I I aspire to be a chairperson one day. Yeah. How did that? I,
2: I never, I never said I aspired to be uh, a chair. Honestly, my aspirations were wanted to be the best uh, surgeon the most surgeons I could be provide the uh, best care. And at that point in time, you're worried about it. I wanted to be tenure. You know, I wanted to, I was always interested. No, I never had any interest in, and in, uh, there's nothing wrong with private practice, but I liked the environment where I was. I was always interested in academic medicine. We had some difficulties in leadership during a period of time where the dean wanted to change the leadership in our department. And he asked me, I mean, he asked, there were a few other people who talked to him, asked me, and he said, well, I'd like for you to be uh, interim chair until we decide what we're going to do about leadership in dermatology. Uh, The previous chair moved on to another institution. And I said, okay, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy to do this. And so for a year, a year and a half, I was the interim chair. And I actually still not, uh, I just did what I thought I was right for the department, tried to grow the department, had some ideas about things that we should do. And then continued. I was a chair. I still practice four days a week and I was a full chair. And at the end of that period of time, he submitted my, he said, we'd like for you to be the chair of the department. There are some stipulations I had because being chair, because at that time I was associate professor and being chair early on, if you're, clinical, you don't get a lot of time to do work or research. Mm -hmm. And when they submitted my qualifications for uh, being chair, because I told them the only way that I do it is if you give me tenure, because this is detracted for this last several years. So that was the only, and I understand, I never thought that they had reservations because of my color. They had reservations because I didn't have specifically the number of publications that they wanted. CV for, but I said the only way that I'll do, if you give me a chair, I'll do it. So really it was never my intent to be chair. It was, I guess someone saw that there was a capabilities, some leadership skills and asked me to do a job. And I would think that they selected me because I did a pretty good job. I think I did a really good job actually, quite honestly, but Because we we were able to. There are some things I didn't accomplish that I wanted to do, but we had a we were small department, but we had a good administration department, and uh, we were able to get some, some things done.
1: Absolutely. And for our listeners, you were the first African American chair in dermatology, and not lost on me as a native Virginian in Richmond, which is the capital of the Confederacy. I mean, do you feel like you were met with any resistance from anyone, or?
2: Oh, there was in the academic community. I don't think so. There was a lot of resistance in the Richmond community. I mean, it, it it starts when I first moved to Richmond. When we would have conferences, there were a lot of entrenched old dermatologists there who felt it comfortable to talk about certain diseases that are they felt were prevalent only in certain populations, and there were couple of times where I had to say, uh, guys, there's an African-American in your group now that you have to uh, consider that your discussions, I don't think are quite appropriate for a, uh, in my presence, if you want to have that discussion on the street, that's okay. And it just, early on, we had, a, there was one of the female dermatologists was a Jewish dermatologist from uh, New York early on in the guidelines for the local And maybe you may want to edit some of this out, though I don't know. The guidelines for the local membership for the local dermatology group were changed because she practiced like uh, twenty miles away, but there was no group we should practice. They rewrote the the bylaw so that she could not be a member. So these kind of things. And when the dean decided to select me as chair, there was a faculty. I don't go to the country clubs and rub elbows with the country club group so but there was someone else that the community thought would would probably function do a better job than than i could do so yeah there, there was some resistance but we got we got through it then there was and to me that was purely based on they had no idea what my they haven't they don't see your cv they don't see your performance they don't see what you do they don't see how you're you're evaluated so that was purely based on they just didn't want me to be the person that lead the department and I remember sometime later, one of them said, well, you did a good job, didn't you? And I said, yeah. But those things that like that happened when I was growing up. So my reaction to them when I was growing up was, okay. And my reaction now is, let's move on. I'm moving on. I, I'm not stuck here. I'm moving on. I've got better things to think about, and to mull over.
1: I think circling back to what you said, it really, it's it's not a you problem, you know? Yeah, it's not, you know. It's a done um, problem, right. Really? I want to touch a little bit on your experience as a fellowship director. Dr. Ian Marr was telling me how you have this superhuman ability to work with the fellow and his words were forgive them when they make a mistake. I feel like it's not, an I, I don't feel like it's a forgiving, it's a sort of having compassion and being a compassionate teacher. but. As someone who's now started working fellows over the last couple of years, I realize how it is superhuman what you guys do, because you're giving up control of this high stakes situation to this person in training. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that.
2: That's that's the hardest. You know, when I, I think in your career, you reach plateaus, you say, how can I make myself better? How can I make this more enjoyable? Even doing surgery, we do some really creative things with flaps, wraps, but 80% 80% of what you do is do an intermediate closure. You do a complex closure. You do a little rotation flap. So I just decided, how can I make the last 20 years of the, uh, my uh, professional career enjoyable? And I said, Let's, I'm going to start a fellowship. I think we have enough material. I think I have reached a level where I have enough uh, a skill level that I can transfer some information. But if you decide to do a fellowship, I mean, I heard so many complaints from fellows is that their hands are tied. They really don't get a chance to do much. It's a lot of observation that you they know, get to do something very simply. What you have to decide to do, okay, I'm not gonna totally relinquish control for the patient to the fellow, but I'm gonna let the fellow, as long as he doesn't cut the facial nerve or inject in the bulb, or as long, you know, I'm gonna let the fellow kind of learn from, with supervision because I never was not there, but. I would always tell him, I said, I wouldn't do it that way. That's the way you can do it. You can try it that way. and see whether it works. And the only way you can fill up, find out it doesn't work is if you try it that way. And that doesn't mean you get a bad result. You just have to you know, kind of start all over. So the hardest thing to do is to kind of relinquish that because your reputation is on the line. But when the fellow, the most rewarding thing is when the fellow completes the task and completes a great result, then actually both of you really feel good about it. And it was, the way that I structured it is that if it wasn't going in the right direction that I thought it would go, we'd start over. I think the fellow got a chance to uh, see the options and feel a little bit more like they were in control because I would say, what do you want to do? How are you going to do this? And that's fine. If, and all of that honestly was predicated on the skill level of the fellow, because you guys come in, I mean, not you, or they come in with no, truly, different skill levels. And there's some people, who, I mean, there, I've had fellows that I didn't leave alone for the first three or four months, which slows you down tremendously because they just didn't even have, you know, and, and every program's different. Is It's just they didn't have kind of what I thought was rudimentary skills to do a small rhomboid flap, rotation flap, and certainly not a forehead flap or interpolation flap. So it it was predicated on the the, the skill of the fellow. But I found those 10 years I had the fellowship was my first fellow was 2005. And the last fellow was 2017. Right before I left, I became a much better surgeon, much better surgeon, because I started doing part of it is I was by myself all the time. And you know, you do nine cases, you don't have time to do all the repairs you want. You send them out. So when I had the fellow, that's when I start saying, I need a fellow so we can do these in house and do these together. And I became a much, um, you know, I didn't do a forehead flap really quite honestly until I had a fellow that those things became much more. Cause I, so they taught me as much and the fellows that came through were much smarter than, I mean, just much embarrassingly so sometimes much smarter than dermatology. So it kept me on the toes. And they were really, and probably because they were seasoned, they were older, a little easier to work with. And I only would say I had one or two bad fellows out of 11. I know some folks in have 50, but I, I didn't have them that long. I had one or two. Most of them were really, really good. And like Ian was a great person, but he's very good, very smart. So really good, really, really, really good, really good fellows kept going through. program.
3: Yeah, you know, I'd love to wrap up a little bit, just talking about your work life balance and how you prioritize joy in your life at this stage in your career and in the past. You, know, you mentioned fishing as a kid growing up in Harpers Ferry. Wondering if that's still something that you engage in, and just I how you find that balance.
2: Well, you know, I've always said that there's some things I just wasn't going to work, and maybe that I wasn't as productive writing. Because if I work ten hours a day, I said, you know, there's some things I'm going to work 14 hours a day. I'm going to find time for me to do something on the weekend. I'm going to play golf. I'm going to travel. I'm going to play tennis. Do that, and you may have to stack in finding that balance. You may have to fact sacrifice some of your development in your scholastic part because, you know, you as you know, writing a paper, even doing a talk, like you, it may take you four or five hours to prepare for a 40 minute talk if you want to teach people something. And writing is even worse. And the most frustrating thing is you put all that work into writing and you send it off to someone and they feel that your efforts really aren't deserving of being viewed by anybody other than yourself. And that's, so I just found time. I just said there's some limits on what I'm going to do, how much I'm going to devote my time to. It's getting harder as you get older because I really like what I do, but I really am trying to get my handicap down to below 12 and go off my camp. <laughs> you can't do that
3: yeah you can't, you can't do it
2: all you know. You can't, can't do <laughs> it's just I've never had children and I know that I can't imagine I know some people that have three children and I don't know how you balance that life it's just you have to put set the priorities and put the guardrails in place and I'm just not going to devote that much time to kill myself I guess but yeah. when you do that something is has to be sacrificed and mm-hmm. it may be you may not get to a full professor as quickly as you got to associate professor when you didn't have those distractions. So that's just a realistic part of it. But it's just mindfully setting boundaries for your life to make your partner and your children and yourself happy. That's a complex task. It's not easy. Oh.
3: Now I think that's very well put. I had a conversation re- recently with John Albertini and he made the comment, you know, we spend all this time in medicine, looking at the light at the end of the tunnel, but we don't actually get out of the tunnel. Right? That's
0: that's true. That's true. true.
3: I think that's something we all need to remember, like you said, making that time and deciding where the sacrifices are on both sides. Absolutely. Well Dr. Garrett, I could speak with you all day, but I suspect that you have other things to do. This has been an absolute pleasure for me, immensely rewarding. I know it will be for our audience. Do you have anything else you would want to add to our discussion, words of wisdom for young and old dermatologists alike who are be turning in?
2: No, just mostly what we've just talked about. No, not yeah. think Thanks, really right now I'm, I chair the diversity task force for the most College, and we're dealing with a really very complex issue in dermatology now, and, and it's not changing just changing numbers you know when you when you're looking at trying to increase diversity it's changing culture changing people's attitudes and uh, like i said i've been kind of mission since ninth i remember in 1974 when i went into medical school we're trying to do the same thing and honestly i can tell you i'm not sure thing i'm not i'm just i'm not sure things have changed a, a whole lot you know because obviously the numbers have, I mean, and I, so I think it's such a complex issue, but it's one I think we need to keep in, the, the, in our sights, one that we need to try to, because I do think it makes medicine better, thanks to the practice of medicine better. And I think it just makes us better uh, as holistically as a society. So as we move forward with the issues of equity and diversity, just be mindful and don't lose the sight of the, of the goals. I think we're, we're all trying to attain for society.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely right. I mean, we, we have so much data on how our outcomes are better for our patients when we are more diverse workforce mm-hmm. and how much more innovative we are and creative we are. And so now, as especially right, this is a call to action to actualize those changes. That's the best. well, thank
0: you. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor in chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing
3: content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.